weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Thanks to Emma Power. It's Tuesday, the 17th of January, and this is Game On. Coming up today, Alan Cawley and Mark Langdon on the latest takeover rumours for Manchester United and Liverpool, plus a return to silverware for Barcelona. And in hurling, it's all Ireland club hurling final week, and Kilkenny great Joey Holden will join us in the build up to his club Ballyhale Shamrocks clash with Dunloy of Antrim this weekend. And Greg Allen will give us his takeaway from last weekend's Hero Cup. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at Game on 2FM. Game on on 2FM. Welcome along, everybody. Ruby, you mentioned Don Loy there, and the last time Don Loy were in All Ireland hurling final was 1996, and it was against Six Mile Bridge. And when you talk about times that made you fall in love with sport or made you realise just how amazing it was, for me, that was it. They went on this brilliant run, like they won the county title, they won the Munster, but we got to travel around as a family to all these like brilliant places, packed up the car, off we went, made the sandwiches, then got to go very to Very important, Park. very important. Very important when you've seven children under 10. Um, went off to, to Crow Park for the final, but it was just the best time. And Claire had obviously won in 95 and won in 97 as well. There was nothing else on my mind at that time except hurling. And what it the most special was all the people that were playing were just everywhere. So you go to the shop and they're there or you go to school and they're outside. You go up to the hurling field and they were just all there around you. So you had all these heroes just walking around beside you and you were looking at them and you were so excited about what was coming for them with games and all the rest. But they were they were just like everybody else. It was great. Normal. Normal. So sports people are normal. It's taking, imagine you realise that and you were that young and you still ask the same questions. <laughs> How Some of them, Ruby. What's the population of Six Mile Bridge? Oh, it's grown now hugely in the a last... A lot more than Fossa. Yeah, a lot more than Fossa. But back then it was a small village. It's very like, small. Yeah, it was a small village. So you were um, all in. We were all in. And like you knew everybody. You knew everybody belonging to them. Like you were up watching training. You'd be pucking around. Like all you did was go to the hurling field because there was nothing else there. Mm. Like nothing. And you'd be at all of their, their trainings, like everything. Like you were literally just following them around, like, like I don't know what, but you were. They were and then the internet obsessed. arrived, and now they're all still there, but they're sitting on phones on the sidelines. Well, that's, that's probably true. Like, yeah, yeah, whereas we were just looking at them, watching them puck the ball and going, right, I can do that. And, you know, you'd be swarming around the goals, like getting in there anytime there was a break and play and all that sort of stuff. And you sure, could, We spoke about it last week, the beauty of it in terms of all my memories growing up with snooker. Yeah, yeah. Like in that, that snooker club, my but dad the other had. thing, Al, is that we were allowed to do that. Like you were yeah. actually allowed, like you just, we'd head off on our bikes and off we'd be gone for the day up to the hurling field and like you into the snooker hall. Kids don't do yeah, that and that was in the centre of town, like, but I was allowed, as you say, go down by myself or with a couple of the yeah. other lads and, and go there. There was no set times or, or what do I call them now when kids are... Curfews. No, when they're, you're setting up schedule times for them the play dates and all this kind of crack <laughs> there was none of that for us Marie yeah, no. would you say they were allowed to do that right did is it not more society doesn't allow us to do that anymore mm-hmm. more yeah. so than you were allowed to do it yeah I think it's a bit of both yeah Ruby definitely society certainly doesn't allow you to do that nowadays and, and we're all parents so we all know I suppose how it feels in terms of when you are scheduling one of those dates or where they're going and we're all probably a little bit overprotective but more so I don't think it's overprotective in a way where we're fearful of what the kid might do. It's more so what might happen because of the world we live in nowadays. 
Exactly. I let so my society lads, doesn't allow us. No. I let my lads out to play and they just go out for the day and they could be gone for hours. But the way I check on them is because we don't use cash anymore. I give them my Revolut so I can see where they are. So I'm like, oh, they're in super value there a half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I see where they tap, but I know, oh, God, they've had some food and they're grand. <laughs> I don't have a Revolut card. Do you not? No, I'm behind the times. You're still your cash only. I know, I'm still in the... I, I told <laughs> I'm you. not surprised you only deal in cash, Alan Coley. Well, well, I only deal in still... In my head, I just want to still live in the 80s and the 90s <laughs> and all that. I, I hate the way the world is going. I still want to remember all those times and still live a bit like that. Yeah, it was a definitely simpler time. But look, mm. it kind of... It does beg questions then about just kids getting out to play and the activity levels, the lack of activity levels because they're not out playing and during the pandemic we saw a couple of soccer clubs doing the campaigns to try and get kids out in the street playing football again but how often do we see it all? Like very, very but that's, rare. Yeah and that's something I suppose when, when we, I suppose the wider debate and the wider discussion when you look at football nowadays and you often used to hear the phrase street footballer mm-hmm. and you don't kind of see that kind of type of player now because it is and, and it's probably kind of feeds into what we were talking about there just about their childhood growing up that feeds into the the training schedule now that lads have it's all scheduled and and specific times you're training and in terms of the training itself it's all specific in what they're trying to do to develop young lads and they're almost taking that freedom of a young player out of it because it's all it's overcoached at times I'm up there myself with young Mm -hmm. fellas Marie I see it I see it at all levels and um, it is it kind of feeds into all that and, and, and that's why I suppose we're speaking of our experiences when we grew up of that time and I still think there's so much of that time we can put into nowadays but it seems like it's almost been bypassed and overlooked in a way where I don't think it's far the better because I still think as I say we had so I suppose so we were so exposed to all those simpler times and simpler things and and there was a much simpler life that because of the way it's gone nowadays I just don't I, I still think there's so much room for the way we had it as well even though, as Ruby rightly says... Yeah, well, hang on, now, hang on. Now, right? When you were a young fella mm. and you were playing soccer, when did the soccer season... When did you start training? So we would play... Um, I actually don't know in terms of the dates. <laughs> I played all year round, Ruby. But in yeah, terms but I, of the I played, season... I, I played rugby in GA. So, yeah. like, I played rugby in the winter, I played GA in the summer. But they didn't overlap. Whereas now... Like, it seems like every sport is clambering over each other mm. to try and not let kids go to the other one. Yeah, and there is that. It's a, it's an ongoing battle. It is an ongoing battle. That's what battle. it seems. It's a power struggle by people at the very top who are the adults who are supposed to behave like adults, but they're in this massive power struggle to not let the kids do anything else. And they're making life really hard for everyone because they're having to decide at 10, well, am I doing that one or am I doing this one instead of doing everything? Well, have- I think that the adults have a lot to answer to here. I know, but in terms of, I suppose, Ruby, say rugby... GEA and soccer the three big ones that were all as you say the power struggle mm. that's going on over that like are you saying the powers that be then should come together and allocate times for everybody to play the three of them I'll give you the option I mean if you look at it like you can't say well if you don't go at solely at soccer it'll stop you being the next Roy Keane mm. I don't really know but I said there's a chance Roy Keane played lots of stuff and wasn't coached like mm. to the minute from the age he was 10 he just happened to be Roy Keane and, and, and I agree with that in terms of I think they should be exposed to them all but I don't know how you're going to get people in a room and basically say alright well this is rugby time for the next three or four months this is GEA time for the next three or four and break it down into maybe three three thirds like that that's never not, going to happen not, society's, society's finished close but it all the down the reality is Al, and you'll know this from having kids involved if your kid is a good soccer player and he's in the DDSL mm. He's playing on a Saturday morning. Right? We have this debate right now, Marie, right? 
He's right playing now. on a Saturday morning, though yeah. he is. And the GAA, if you're playing GAA, you're playing on a Saturday morning. So if you're an eight-year-old boy, a nine-year-old boy, a ten-year-old boy, mm. an eleven-year-old boy, or a twelve-year-old boy, you have to pick. I rest my case, Your Honour. And if you want to swim, you're swimming on a Saturday morning. Mm. And if you want to run, you're probably running on a Saturday morning too. But so, like, I just, I think it's crazy. But I don't know how you could, I don't know how you can get the powers that that be are that are involved. You mentioned swimming, rugby, so- or Gaelic soccer there that are going to come to you and say, okay, it's soccer on Saturday, it's GA on Sunday, it's swimming on Monday. It's not going to happen. That in as as Look, you've loads of time in your hands compared to me and Marie. You could go away <laughs> and work this out logistically, right? And sort it all out from the beginning. So Monday night is soccer, Tuesday night is football, Wednesday night is rugby. Just keep working out there, Alan. Come back to us in a couple of months. Time. All right, no problem. Basketball seem to have it sorted actually in Dublin because they go in the afternoon. So when everyone else is finished playing in the mornings, basketball is at three o'clock. And the luxury basketball has is well, it's indoor. not a luxury, sorry, I'm not going to say that, but it is indoor and it can't turn on lights. So yeah. they have a big advantage over some of the others. But it is tricky. Like, as I say, in, in our club, we're having that debate at the moment with our team because it's predominantly a Gaelic mm. area as such. And we've a You're really trying good, to rob all the Gaelic players. No, we've a really good soccer team, but they play Gaelic on the Saturday and we play on the Sunday. And I'm kind of, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on air, but we, we're having these discussions mm. and debates and you're trying to say. As you said there, Marie, at eight, nine, well, they're nine and ten now, they have to choose. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's right either, mm-hmm. but that's the position they find themselves in. You're still involved in the conversation. You're still thinking about <laughs> making it happen. Now we're getting to the truth, <laughs> But there, I'm absolutely involved in the conversation. Yeah. But, but See, you're not standing up for what you believe in. No, I you're am. You're just going with the flow. No, 100%. I'm, I'm the one that's pushing for to get them involved away from the Gaelic and into the soccer. <laughs> exactly. I'm saying too yeah, much now on there. The See, exactly. Yeah, we, we found you out, Alan Colley. But that's yeah. the situation we find ourselves in for the reasons you outlined, Ruby, that they're all over overlapping with each other and it's a power struggle in an ideal world we'd, we'd have them playing on a Saturday and the Gaelic on the Sunday and, and everyone's happy or whatever the case may mm. be but they're going up against each other it is it's tricky it's really tricky and mm. I'm sure there's parents listening and driving home and they're having the same conversations and debates and there's young fellas playing on a Friday Saturday Sunday and they're being pulled from one to the other it is tricky oh stop the lights I tell you what's, I tell you what's even trickier even in the country it's a fuel car you want to bring the kids around <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you're counting it up all right, Ruby. Oh, my um, God. Before we get into the soccer chat, um, I wanted to talk to you both about um, about Andy Murray and Tom Brady because you're both former players. And last night we saw Tom Brady's uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers lose the playoff um, game to Dallas Cowboys. After the game, Tom Brady gave his parents a kiss, walked down through the tunnel, looked like it could be the end for him, did a press conference, said he's going to have a night's sleep on it. All drama, as you'd expect from Tom Brady. We're not sure. He's 45. We're not sure if we're going to see him again. This morning, them got up. We saw Andy Murray in an absolutely epic um, game in the Australian Open. He's got a metal hip. I'm not sure what his mobility is like when he's walking. He was well able to play the tennis. But I just wondered, like, for the two of them, just two examples. Davy Russell at the weekend as well. He came back. He won grand. But when is enough enough, Al? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a tough question. It's a really tricky, hard question to answer. But I think, and everybody's probably different in terms of you could, tr- you could isolate those three when's enough mm-hmm. enough because Murray was probably injured and didn't want to retire. He was forced to retire, so he didn't get out at the top maybe when he wanted to. So that's probably he'd have a grievance about that, Murray. Whereas you look at Davy Russell. 
and he made the choice Ruby made the choice or whatever so if that's the case they're happy in their decision because they were the ones mm-hmm. that made that choice themselves whereas he was forced to retire Tom Brady is a different case altogether because he's at the stage where he probably still feels he's performing at the he level He retired as well like David Russell and then came back Yeah but he still feels like he's performing at the level that he's capable of doing that and um, and as I say the team wanted him and he, he's still capable of doing that job and doing that role for the team so it's a different it's, you could isolate them all there's probably there's no set answer I don't think when is enough enough but for me for the likes of Davy Russell I looked at him last week and made the decision something similar with Ruby for all the success that they had particularly for the sport that they're in get out while you can in terms of that you're still while you still wet. have both your yeah, hips yeah more or less I actually have an appointment tomorrow to see if I need a new one um, but <laughs> I think they're different. I think Andy Murray and Tom Brady are completely different. I think Andy Murray probably came back with the ambition to prove that he could get himself back. Prove to who though? Prove to himself? Himself, of course. You're all the time proving to yourself. Who else? What do you set out to do? I mean, he's an individual sports person. Maybe team players slightly different, but Andy Murray was always an individual. So he's only ever proving anything to himself. He's setting his own standard, his own levels and his own ambitions. So he's proving to himself that he will beat his own body and get back with one natural hip and one prosthetic hip and he's gotten himself back to a level not quite to where he was but it's still I'm sure he's getting huge satisfaction out of where he's gotten to as regards Tom Brady I'm not a huge NFL fan but at 45 years of age it's obviously the adulation he loves because there is not much else he can achieve as an American footballer On Andy Murray right and here's one just to kind of go away from your question Marie slightly but I want to ask Ruby does Andy Murray get the credit he deserves? Because I think Andy Murray, right, and I'm going to say something here and I'd love to get both of your opinion on it in terms of when this he is was... Going to be good. It is going to be good because I've thought long and hard about this and I used to say it that a could lot. Be dangerous. I used to say it a lot and especially when he was really successful and he was competing with Nadal, Djokovic, mm. Federer and winning majors and all that kind of thing. There was a period in that era, in that time, maybe three, four years ago when he was so successful with those that tennis... Now hear me out on this, right? And think of all the other sports. That tennis, with those four, as good as they were, and the levels that they were reaching, was higher than any other level of any other people in sport across the board. That tennis was like, it didn't get any better. What they were doing in tennis, no other sport was hitting those heights with with the sports people involved in those specific sports. I wouldn't disagree with you. And even when you look at the physical effort, Andy Murray played for four hours and 45 minutes yesterday. It's unreal. After all the injuries, now you could argue. Could, could could you argue cyclists? What can they do? Tour de France? Could they be doing four, five-hour stages? Possibly. I yeah. think one of the things I'll, cycling skewed. I'll getting into it though, or is that when you look at how hard it is to get to that level as well. Mm. So you see, like you know, people being seated four hundred and fifty-six in the world, and how hard it is to get up through the ranks. And I probably look at athletics as well when you look at the number of people that that run so like when you globally like globally yeah, yeah. so I, I think that I'd probably put athletes into that sphere as well because they have they have risen so high in such a populated sport to answer the question about Andy Murray I think he got enough credit f- from where his own country and from the UK mm. I think trying to compete with the other superstars in the game on a global level was going to be tough but I think within the UK and within Scotland he does have a huge status and but, he is appreciated but not not only not only competing he was beating them he was beating Djokovic Federer Nadal the best players we've ever seen but it was still a surprise when he did it 
not at not when he was hitting not when he was kind of consistently good for about two or three years there uh, he was the outsider of four mm. but well, like, no, he was the one that made up the quartet yeah. so like if you would just say, if you were to say to anybody who's not a hardcore Andy Murray fan where would you rank Nadal Federer or Djokovic Murray I would be willing to suggest that most people would rank Murray number four. Oh, he's always four. I've no, that's yeah. noticed. So he him. made up. The, he made up the quartet. But there were Alan is right. There were a golden generation. There were four incredible athletes. And I think as a sports fan, you were lucky that the four of them were there together, and they didn't come along one after the other because you got to watch them competing. And that's the brilliance of sport. And you get a golden generation. And that's now the problem with tennis is that they don't have people like that anymore. No, and and they're still winning. Mm. It's the same there at the snooker at the weekend. Mark Williams still in the final forty eight. O'Sullivan, Hendry, mm. the class of 92, like it's phenomenal, like in terms of John Higgins, Williams, and O'Sullivan. It's like Ruby, Garrity, yeah. Davy Ross. It's unreal. Yeah, but all good things come to an end. But uh, look, and Davy is but back. We don't but have I, the characters like you guys in the racing either, though. I couldn't say, I don't know that many people describe me as a character, Marie. Well, they've been described as a lot of things. I'll describe you as a character. Character, in a, yeah, in a certain way, I But you're, you're definitely somebody that was compelling viewing, and so was, and is, Davy Russell and Barry, Barry Garrity, yeah. and, and there was great storylines within Irish racing when you were there. I don't know, besides Rachel aside, does it have the, the same... No, it probably still has the talent, only... Yeah. I suppose when you looked at where we came from, you did have Charlie Swan, but mm. when we were growing up, Ireland was importing English jockeys. There were Irish jockeys that were based in England coming back to ride in Ireland, but they were getting the big rides. So we came along and sort of broke the mould after Charlie and, and a golden generation of horses came with us. So, you know, it definitely the horses helped. Ireland went and won Grand Nationals, went and had numerous winners in Cheltenham. So the success helped because investment came into Irish sport and we had the horses. But I, I don't know, I look at Tom Brady and there's a kind of... Reminds you a bit of Ronaldo heading off to Saudi Arabia. I mean, like, he flopped at the World Cup. He's now in Saudi Arabia. However great he was, this is what you're going to remember him for. Yeah. And Tom Brady's slightly playing that card as well. Like, you can, everybody can do something for too long. And knowing when to get out is as big a trick as any of them. And I think, it, 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 I think you're right, Ruby, that it has to be about the adulation because it's not about the money because even if he stepped away now when you look at the contract that Tony Tony Romo got for doing television like there is such massive contracts there for broadcasting for people like Tom Brady if he wants it so he can step into that career I'm sure he'll But does Tom Brady ever need to step into any other career? It, go, it goes back there's a little bit of we spoke last week when Lee Keegan retired Marie and if you're fully content with your decision and you feel as though the right, the right decision to make and there's no kind of self-ego about it or selfishness about it, I think that's the time to get out. It would have been so easy for Lee Keegan just to go another year, as mm -hmm. we said last week. But I think I think it takes courage to do that. And I also think there's a, having awareness about it. As Ruby says, you can overstay your welcome as well. And Ronaldo has certainly overstayed his welcome now. And he'll be remembered, that Saudi Arabian thing and all yeah. that kind of... Legacy. He, he was, to me, he's, he, he probably will never tarnish that CR7 brand or whatever it is. But as a memory of him, to mm -hmm. me, yeah, it has been slightly diminished. But look, it comes to retiring. I can only speak, can only speak of your own feelings or emotions, Alan. And there was nothing that was going to turn me back. I was completely done. How, how many weeks in advance, Ruby, did you know or when you were going to make that decision? About 57. Maybe. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but I had such a bad run of injury in the end. I was looking for the perfect way out and it presented itself. Mm -hmm. But I, I was done. I had achieved way more than I ever thought I could possibly achieve and felt grateful for it. So I was 
I was happy to go. I'd had a wonderful career and I was thinking about the next one because I was well aware that no matter who you are, everybody is replaceable. See, that's the awareness. Mm -hmm, Totally. Um, I'll be really interested to see what Messi does when the time comes. I I hope he just... I wanted Messi to retire after the World Cup. (gasps) See, I, I know, but you were all emotional about him yeah. at the World Cup in Argentina. We were listening to you for weeks. Like, we're going to buy you a box of Kleenex. I was for right. Sake. I was right. <laughs> See the way we went from uh, Ruby to Messi there seamlessly. Um, okay, <laughs> let's take a very quick break. We've lots of uh, football chat to come. Game on on Two FM. Welcome back. It's now time to talk football. Alan Colley is with us in studio and I'm delighted to say that Mark Langdon of the Racing Posts joins us on the line. Mark, I thought we were going to be talking a lot about transfers, but it seems like we're going to be talking about takeovers to start with. Uh, news broke just before we came on air that British billionaire Sir Jim Radcliffe's firm Enios has officially entered the race to buy Manchester United. I asked Ruby just before we came on, is he rich enough? And Ruby said he absolutely is. I correct myself, Mark, before you jump in. So they will, Enios would definitely Marie be wealthy enough to be the lead investor in a club like Manchester United like the Sternbrenner are in the New York Yankees with loads of investors in behind them now they call the shots but they would be wealthy enough to be the lead investor in a club like Manchester United Mark would that be right? He, um, you know, uh, Ratcliffe is the, the the richest man in the UK I think he's worth about 20 billion um you know, United would cost about five billion, so there'd, there'd still be enough bi- uh, uh, enough billions left over. Um, and, and absolutely right, Ruby. That you know, I don't think this would be just a, a one-man band. There, there would be other in- investment. I mean, there usually is. Um, you know, when you're talking about this kind of level um, uh, of deal, I mean. You know, there are, it, it doesn't feel like there are many perfect billionaires um, out there and you know all of them or, or sort of a lot of them I should say would have at least some kind of controversy behind them um, Ratcliffe is, is no different in in that regard but I think there will be Manchester United fans that you know would well a want anyone but the glazers in charge um, and, and BC see him as somebody that you know at least supports the club and therefore he would be um, you know a preferred uh, bidder I, I'm sure that there will be others still um, to enter the race but I, I think it's been clear for some time and even before um, Ratcliffe bought Nice that you know Manchester United was um, a target if the Glazers ever sold so I think this has been a, a long time really in the making um, this bid but like I say I, I'm not sure it would be the only one um, there seems to be um, still interesting from Middle East and, and from Asian countries as well so we'll have to see um, if he is to be the, the, the eventual owner or certainly his companies to be the eventual owner but I think for you, uh, most Manchester United fans they'll just be seeing this as a, another day closer to getting the Glazers out of the club So what way are Liverpool looking at getting rid of or maybe keeping Fenway Sports Group then will they see that as a positive or a negative? Um, well I, I think this would be a tough one because it would be up for Liverpool fans I suppose to um, answer that because the, the latest links are coming from um, you know a Qatari um, investment fund, and you know that has got um, probably more controversies behind it. And you know Newcastle fans have had to go through um, a similar. I, I suppose you have to almost argue with yourself as to whether um, it's worth it and to what extent do you um, accept what's going on and accept 
sort of the sports washing um, element of it for having a successful football team. And Manchester City fans have been through through that um, as well. I think there will be some Liverpool fans that that wouldn't want to see that the club fall into those hands, and there would be others that that wouldn't care as long as um, the investment w- was made into the team. Um, I, I personally think that, that supporters should care um, who owns their club and um, you know should take more responsibility for um, you know who is owning what, what is essentially you know community clubs and and, and what. Um, to a lot of people is, is their life and so I, I think that there is more to it than money but there's definitely a frustration from um, you know Liverpool supporters there's no doubt about that you know not only the defeats but um, what they see as, as a lack of investment in the team and not just you know just not able to keep up um, with some of these you know absolute kind of financial monsters at the moment and you see something like Chelsea just going absolutely crazy and showing no signs of stopping I don't think Liverpool are, are capable of keeping up with that at the moment Well you said ask Liverpool fans so I think we will Murray what way do you feel about Fenway selling Liverpool? I definitely think that they need money because every time you hear Klopp talking in a press conference and saying that they don't have monopoly money to spend on players it is a tricky one because it feels like now that you have to be owned by a country to be able to compete at the top level in the Premier League and it's terrible to say it but like even if you look at, at Newcastle and um, the progress that they're making and the turnaround that's there and the fact that you know they're only getting started with what's coming down the track in terms of their investment it feels like you need to have endless billions to be able to compete at the top it feels that way but then Mark you have UEFA bringing in new fair play rules and finance and sustainability rules etc etc UEFA bringing them in are they going to have any impact next summer when they bring them in? Um, I, I mean what, they haven't so far uh, what, I mean that, that's maybe been a, a bit unfair because there have been some teams that have been punished for um, overspending and we've seen um, you know other teams not be able to to make some of the signings that they wanted to but I, I think it's also pretty clear that the biggest teams the richest teams have also got the best lawyers um, and seem to find the best ways around um, the, the, these rules and whether that's bringing in um, pretty unrealistic I think it's fair to say sponsorship deals that um, uh, certain clubs have been accused of doing and you know you, you if, if they're bidding X amount for the corner flags and you know nobody else is bidding for them um, it, it seems silly that you're, you're able to just put that on as, as, as a great big win but um, you know we, we've, we've seen clubs do that and so I tend to think that the biggest and best teams um, and sort of the wealthiest teams find ways around um, any rules that are put in place and it doesn't tend to stop their spending. And I, I think for a lot of people, actually, the financial fair play is, is supposed to be there to stop clubs spending money that they haven't got. Um, and, and I think that it works in, in that respect a lot of the time. Um, and, and we are seeing... So I would say fewer teams getting into trouble kind of chasing the dream. The problem is, as Marie was just saying there, that you've now got teams that are just able to um, blow rivals completely out of the water. And, you know, it's only going to distort the competition further, um, you know, the... The, the, the kind of the more countries get involved in in buying um, these sort of sporting institutions. I think on the Liverpool one, the Fenway Group, it's almost as if 
Ruby and we spoke about even there with, with the individuals in terms of retirement it's almost that's run its course now and they obviously want out so when you think of the money that's been bandied about in terms of the investment that might come in out of all the clubs so far that we've seen with those kind of Middle Eastern takeovers you think of City you think of Newcastle I think Liverpool and Football Club and Liverpool fans and the people that are involved with that will have the biggest moral dilemma out of them all in terms of that investment coming in and where it's coming from because if you think of the history and heritage of Liverpool and what they've been brought up on in terms of the working class people and that club over a number of years and how successful it's been they are the ones I feel and I'd love to hear in terms of Liverpool supporters if anyone's listening their view on it because you think of Man City their history and heritage was nowhere near as big as maybe Man United in that city they were always the big club you go to the Etihad now when I was over there two or three years ago it's like as if this club was just formed once that takeover mm. happened they don't even go back to the brilliant players that Man City had oh, they'll probably be looking though at Everton and looking what's happening over there and the fact that they could be in championship next year and going, well, whatever it takes, we don't want to be like them. But that's the point I'm getting to. It, it almost feels, and it's sad in a way, that these takeovers have to take mm-hmm. place for them to compete. But also there's a serious moral dilemma in terms of do you want the people taking over and the money that's been bandied about just to have you successful? And I think they're the ones, Newcastle are a different kettle of fish altogether because they just wanted Mike Ashley out. Mm-hmm. They haven't mm-hmm. won a trophy in 68 years. So their fans are in dreamland at the moment and they, they can kind of override and overlook that investment and that kind of dilemma but I certainly think out of everybody in terms of these takeovers and what's happening I think the Liverpool fans are the biggest ones where you might get kickback from them I I don't know <laughs> Every, everyone has a price Alan whatever way you look at it I, I don't know and that's going to be the price of success that's the way the Premier League is going but it's but sad, Mark, it's sad in that way Ruby it's sad yeah, but it's gone I mean the, 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 the way they do close the door now and the horse is halfway down the road yeah, basically, poss- possibly. But I just think I'm. T- I'm honestly, I'm. I'm. I'm no. I know from Liverpool fans and people and all that they have been brought up on, and and I know there'll be a kickback from them. There has to be. There has to be. Because at what point do you say enough's enough? But then look at Todd Bowley in Chelsea. Yeah, but that's so. it's it's enough that they're gone too far. The game now. He's 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 overran the the game. He's well down the road, like. Mark, what, what about them and the contracts they're handing out and the way they're splitting up the, the transfer fees over years with these eight-year contracts and seven years and six years? It's all just like, it's creative. Yeah, it's, it's, it? it's not football, is it? Um, it, it it's, not, it's not something that we used to do in football. Um, I, I quite like baseball. I, I know I, there won't be too many people in sort of UK and Ireland that, that do like baseball, but I, I do. And so I, I kind of... I, I think the top bowlers approaching it from... a a baseball environment um, where you know you do throw out these huge contracts. Um, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't be that big a surprise that you give kind of a superstar that comes on the market a ten-year deal. Um, you know, because that's kind of what you do um, in, in baseball, and there aren't any transfer fees, and it does cost you. Um, you know, it can cost you thirty million a year to sign a, a top player, so it's, you know, three hundred million dollars over over ten years. So he's looking at it from that point of view, probably thinking, well, actually, this is uh, this, this is working out cheap, and these are just investments. At some stage, he will have to stop because um, you know, baseball, although it's a team sport, is still very much an individual against another individual. The pitcher throws it and then, you know, um, it's hit and, you know, there are all kinds of combinations over, you know, right and left-handed pitches and stuff like that. But essentially, it's it's one person against another one. Football is nothing like that. Um, football is a team sport and until the team is 
working cohesively, you're not going to be successful. I can't think of the last time just a you know a bunch of individuals won anything substantial in football. It's just not the way um, that the sport works. And you know, Graham Potter's got a very difficult job trying to put all of these players together. And at some stage soon, they will need to stop buying players and just let. The, the coach sort of build a team, um, you know, that, that can be successful. Um, I've no idea where, where where they stop, and it, it's hard to keep track of all the players that they've got. They've got they've got sort of about ten or eleven forwards on their books, and, and that's you know you've got Lukaku and players like that that potentially um, could come back. Uh, Mudrick last week we spoke about him. Yeah, he's a very exciting player. There's no doubt about that. I think he would have been better suited at Arsenal because you look at the way they've developed Saka and Martinelli. I think the player wanted to go there as well, but you know, ultimately Chelsea paid more money. I just, it's impossible to know, isn't it, where he fits into that team because we've got absolutely no idea what Graham Potter's sort of best eleven is and what he's trying to do there yet because um, he keeps been given more players week after week almost and um, you know, it, it's hard to sort of see yet what the Chelsea team say will look like come the even the end of the season you wouldn't know what their best 11 was so um, I think it's a bit of a mess at the moment you know ultimately you think if you just keep spending money you've got to get it right I mean Manchester United um, are, are slowly sort of getting there I, I think but you also you, you, you need to build that team spirit and, and that cohesion and, and Chelsea haven't got that at the moment until they do um, I don't see them being successful Alan there was a debate on one of the million WhatsApp groups that I'm on today about Graham Potter and the fact that he has all these huge name players and there was a suggestion that the players wouldn't have the respect for him because of him not having the same sort of CV from a footballing management point as somebody like Zidane do you think that's an issue? Uh, possibly because the players now have such big egos, mm. Marie, majorly. Um, and, and in some ways it irritates me greatly because the dynamic has completely changed where the players have more power than the managers, unless you're one of those elite names, like mm. you said, Zidane, Klopp, Guardiola. But I'd love to think Graham Potter, with the way he carries himself, he will command that respect and be big enough to stand up to those egos. Now, at the moment, you're looking at Aubameyang, who's the prime example of a fella who you'd have nowhere near a dressing room. Arteta got him out the door as quickly as he could. I'd love to think Potter will do something similar. But the problem for him at the moment is he has a view in his head uh, Graham Potter in terms of the, the person and the individual that he is and he knows that and how and the standards that he kind of adheres to and holds himself to but the problem he is at the moment and, and, and I'm sure again I'm going back to the stuff with the Liverpool thing morally he's probably looking at this and the situation and how have I got myself involved in this because it seems so chaotic and he would have kind of gone to Chelsea thinking this is my big moment go to a big club I've worked so hard to, to earn this opportunity having done so well building my way up and now he's in the middle of this chaotic kind of regime it seems whereas I'd love to think and I'm sure he asked questions prior to taking over thinking will it be like this and this is what I want and it seems like all that has just blown up in his face because I doubt like they played a game on Sunday and they announced the signing of Mudrick in the middle of the match like, like the, the discontent that must be through all the departments of that football club at the moment like nobody's singing off the same hymn sheet and above all the manager should be the one calling the shots and sadly for him I think he's just kind of inherited a bit of a chaotic situation with an owner who is almost playing championship manager with the, with the team <laughs> at the moment which is sad in a way and I feel for Potter greatly because he's probably be 
if if things continue and he's not given the time to build his team and put his stamp on things, he's going to be the one that's going to lose out. And I just feel for him. And so, he's such a good person, he seems, that he's earned this opportunity and it's all blown up in his face. Well, he probably should have watched Moneyball before he took the job because that's what Todd Bowley is doing. Mark, thanks a million for taking our call. Alan is staying with us. We have golf and hurling up next after this break. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back. We are now delighted to be joined by Ballyhale Shamrocks hurler Joey Holden ahead of the AIB All-Ireland Hurling Senior Club Championship Final which takes place this Sunday at Crow Park at 1.30pm. Now in its 32nd year supporting the GA Club Championships, AIB is extremely proud to once again celebrate the communities that play such a role in sustaining our national games. Joey Holden, you're very welcome. Thanks very much. But at the very top of the show, Joey, I was talking to Ruby and Alan about 1996 when Six Mile Bridge beat Dunloy in the All-Ireland Club final and I was telling them what it was like in the village and how obsessed we all were with the senior hurling team and we were following them everywhere and we were going up to the whatever training, wherever they were, we were there. Is that what it's like for you guys now? Um, it's similar. Well, it's just with the weather and the facilities you have, it's difficult to train in Ballyhale at the moment. The pitch is so wet and that kind of thing, so it's difficult for people to travel around. But yeah, there's a great buzz. Anytime you go to the local shops or quiz and how's the team getting on and how's this like going and that like going and what's the team going to be, so um, they're the questions that we get. But it's great to see this excitement all around the village. But Joey, when you look at the success Bally Hale have had since you even came in in 2010, like it just must be a little bit of a tradition down there. It's like every year, how far are we going to go? Um, listen, we've we've a good team there, and it's great to be getting to these um, latter stages of these big competitions. But I suppose the the way things have gone, the, the pitch has become the hub of the parish. You know, that's where people meet. That's where you meet your friends from the age of six right up to thirty six, thirty seven as players, and even parents. That that's where they meet their friends as well. They have a chat with, they keep their training. So um, yeah, it's a, a part of our tradition and part of what makes us down there is the world, I suppose. We only won it the once. That's why I'm still talking about it. How many, however many years it is later, but still, it was very special. Um, just on on Dunloy, and I, I guess when when they were there in '96, Six Mile Bridge were the favourites going into it, and likewise, you are the favourites going into it as well. Um, for you, Joey, just what does that? How does that affect what you're doing when you are such strong favourites going into a game like this? Um, I suppose we don't really tend to look into it, you know, because we, we don't decide who's favourites. Um, we just have to win the games to try to get to the final and, and, and Dunlai have the same so both teams going into the final have won a lot of games to get to here so they'll have plenty of confidence um, going into the final and so do we so um, I suppose on the day both teams will prepare as best they can and just try to put out their best performance and, and that's all you can do mentally prepare physically prepare to give your best performance on the day and see how it goes You have a lot of players who've been in Crow Park been in finals before do you think experience stands to or having won and lost, you go there maybe with different emotions that are harder to control? Um, no, because if, if you delve down and deeper into it, Dunlai have lots of Antrim players that would have won in Crow Park last year. They they won the All-Ireland semi-final, which is nearly just as big a game the last day in Crow Park. Yes, we've had plenty of players that played in Crow Park, but I don't really buy into it too much. It, it's just another venue. Yes, it's Crow Park, but it's another venue. It's a, it's a hurling match. There's going to be one ball one referee throwing it in and 15 players taking on 15 and, and whatever players come on so I don't really buy into that too much that they experience maybe it will help and hopefully it will but I think if you look into it both teams have plenty of experienced players playing in Crow Park as well We were talking as well about Tom Brady 45 still playing the NFL we are talking about Andy Murray uh, still chasing his dream with his one hip you're 32 now is that old for a club hurler? 
Um, I'd say if you look around, there's plenty of older lads there that are playing away. DJ's what, 36 now, or 35, 36, don't get me, I don't know what age is, but he's a lot older and he's still firing there, so. Um, I suppose I'd be in more more experienced category now at this stage, all right. So Marie, I'm I can't believe you're trying to retire him. <laughs> That's terrible. I, mean, I have a follow-up question, don't worry. So how have you evolved then and how has your game evolved and, and position as well? Because often when players who are defenders start to get a little bit older, not as old as uh, some of the other players that will be around you, you tend to move back the field. Um, what have you been, what's, what's your trajectory been like? Um, yeah, I suppose I would have started out in the, the half back line when I was in the middle. I suppose when I was younger, I kind of played everywhere, trying mm-hmm. to find a position. Um, then around the half back line, I suppose I've moved towards the full back line. I've been in full back now for a nice little stint, I suppose, with the club. And I played a few games with Kilkenny there as well. So, um, But it, it's a different position as the game evolves, it's become different as well. A lot more space in there now than when I would have started and that sort of thing. So they're the things that you have to cope with. And, I suppose nowadays you're you're always marking someone who's kind of nearly faster than you. You have to um, do what you can to either get out in front of them or maybe pull them back a little bit just to give you a little bit of help in hand. I like that awareness as well that you have. Um, it has changed all right and, and you don't see, I guess, the traditional 15 v 15 in their usual places as much anymore. And the club game in many ways mirrors the inter-county game just in, in terms of standards. And some of the games we've seen, um, Joey, in the last while have just been amazing from a, a club perspective. What are they like to play in them compared to the county? Yeah, I suppose the club game is... I don't think it'll ever catch up because the county standard is going to be high-quality players, you know, getting better and better all the time. But uh, the club players are putting in a phenomenal effort in regards to strength and conditioning and and the structures that are in place so the quality is getting better as well you know when I started out maybe a ball into the corner was a safe ball but now lads will run out and get it and throw it over their shoulder over the bar but um, in, I suppose when you're playing these competitions you're, you're playing against teams that have won a lot they've won their own counties to get to where they are so they have a lot of quality uh, and you're coming up against that so the standard is, is high um, compared to the county I, like the county is consistently at a high level you're playing consistently good players so you can't take your guard off for a second um, and the club is I suppose a little bit below that but some of the players that you come up against are, are, are really really of a high standard uh, Joey just on uh, Ballyhale and look lots of people who'll be listening in are involved with teams and they're, they're coaching kids uh, in Dublin you have thousands of kids now in, in GA clubs you're such a small club but you're able to develop players that are good enough to play senior hurling for the club and senior hurling for the county and you know I think when it comes to when you're looking at kids and you want to retain them and develop them if you can get them through to senior level then you've been successful because you've brought them the whole way through but you seem to be able to do it to such a level that you're playing for small but your retention is is amazing and the skill development is brilliant as well how do you do it? Yeah it's a question that's been asked a few times and I don't know if there's any real answer to it but um, it's testament to all the, all the work that goes on in the club and I don't think there's anything outrageously to it it's just supposed to keep everyone involved from a young age you know it, not just maybe concentrate on the strongest player develop him but even the weakest player like make sure that they're enjoying their hurling that they're feel part of the team that everyone is involved um, within them teams and then they'll start they'll have that they'll grow that love for the game and they'll practice the skills on their own as well as not just being down a train and then the full then when you're marking high quality players you're developing all the time and people are encouraging you geez you've done well on Henry Shefflin there this evening or TD Reid you know see if you go home and see if you can learn something from that so I suppose when you 
bring all that together, that's what maybe brings confidence in people and then they're, they're loving going down training and they're trying to improve all the time and then they're developing their skill set um, on their own as well as in training. So when you combine all that, I think that's what um, produces some of the players for us. Well, whatever you're doing in Ballyhale, you're doing a hell of a lot right. Joey, you stepped away, I suppose, from Kilkenny in 2021 and whilst I don't envy you heading out in Crow Park at the weekend for fear I get the be- a belt of a hurl, you are going to head off to Central America after that at some stage. North or south are you going to travel? Um, we're going to start in Mexico City and then head south. So we originally were going to go to Brazil just with the weather, but um, we think the weather will be better in Central, so we're going to start there and work our way down towards South America. So win, lose, or draw, you have something to look forward to? Absolutely, but hopefully it'll be a win. <laughs> Hopefully you will. Well, the best of luck for you. And thanks a million for taking our call. Mind yourself in Mexico. I'm sure Alan Colley knows a few lads out there. <laughs> Are we, have we another quick break to take, or are we going straight to go? Break there. Game on on 2FM. Yeah, welcome back. Greg Allen is with us in studio to talk golf. Greg, over the weekend, Francesco Molinari led from the front as continental Europe beat favourites Great Britain and Ireland by four points in the Hero Cup. Were you glued to it? No, <laughs> but I watched a lot of it. Uh, it didn't do anything to make me want to feel glued to it. I really enjoyed it. Mm. It was pleasant watching. And in very much the same way as the Seve Trophy used to be pleasant watching back, the predecessor of the Hero Cup was the Seve Trophy. Back in 1999, just to give a bit of history and not sound like an old fart, um, the Ryder Cup team that lost to America in 1999, the European Ryder Cup team, they lost after having a 10-6 lead going into the final day. And so between the 99 Ryder Cup and over the winter, there was this clamour for an event that would give European players something to play that would somewhat rival the President's Cup in giving European players a bit more sort of experience in the year between Ryder Cups. And so the Seve Trophy was inaugurated and it is identical, almost as its twin of the Hero Cup. And it was fine, but I went to three of them. Can I remember who won any of them? Nope. Because they're grand, they're lovely, they're really good, Mm -hmm. they serve a purpose. They bring players together, they bring that sort of territory of playing team golf into the equation of a player's mind. But the result doesn't really matter. You cannot have a rivalry between continent of Europe and Britain and Ireland because they are teammates at the end of the day. They all play in the same tour uh, and they'll all hopefully come together. And all of these players who really did quite impress over the weekend might come into the equation for the Ryder Cup come September. Or they mightn't. You know, some of them could find themselves who played brilliantly over the uh, weekend in the Hero Cup. They're not even in the equation because between now and the Ryder Cup is nine months and it's a long time and a lot can happen. It sure can. So it was a friendly game of golf, but if you're Francesco Molinari and the Ryder Cup is in Italy, he's very unlikely to play his way in, but he most certainly gave himself a chance of getting a pick last weekend. Uh, yeah, but you know, but, but by the time, you know, June, July, August and the massive amount of Ryder Cup points accumulates from playing in majors and big events and elevated events on the PGA Tour and Francesco will be hopefully in some of those. Francesco's just got to play better. You just can't get into the team by being someone who's ranked 125th but has had a very good Hero Cup last January. You know, and, and Francesco has fallen off the, the world's top 100 after getting, I think, as high as number six in the world after his Open Championship win in 2018. Uh, he also had another win on the PGA Tour that year in Virginia I think it was you know there's no question that Francesco Molinari is complete class but he has to find form to get the points to become into the equation for Luke Donald to think that he's going to be one of his six picks and Francesco Molinari is a fabulous ball striker and as we saw in the Hero Cup he seemed to be 
certainly getting his putting touch back and putting is what keeps him from being a brilliant player again his ball striking is still good he's not very long off the tee but he's accurate and he's uh, and he's a really good match player uh, and, I, and I, we all like Francesco Molinari he's a touchstone of wisdom and all of that Greg is it fair to say that in many ways the season really starts this week? Yeah, it does. I feel it does. Um, you know, the events in Hawaii are grand. The Tournament of Champions on that, you know, circus act of a golf course in Kapalua, which is a bit of a strange golf course with lots of hills and drops and 670-yard par fives, which are, are easily reachable in two. And, and last week's event uh, was a very nice event, very good event, not very star-laden at the top end of the leaderboard, but a very good conclusion. Siwoo Kim fending off Hayden Buckley, two good players. Um, that was uh, a really nice tournament. But when the tournament comes to the mainland of the United States, and it does for this American Express Championship on the West Coast. You've got eight of the top 15 in the world, five of the top 10. Scotty Scheffler is there. You know, John Ram is there. It's the real feeling of, for me that the season is underway and we'll have San Diego next week. Uh, it's a very big tournament as well. And um, I think this is where the season starts. And over, not in Europe, but on the DP World Tour or European Tour, whatever you want to call it, the Abu Dhabi Championship is a properly big event. It's won by, I think, uh, you know, obviously Shane Lowry won it in 2019. Uh, Tyrrell Hatton won it a couple of years ago it's it's a big tournament it's a Rolex series event it's 9 million dollars in prize funds so yeah for me the season starts here or and the course, year starts here and of course Leon Maguire is in action in the first event of the LPGA Tour yeah and this is really important because you know towards the end of last year Leona had a bit of a, an up and down mid-summer um, but then was fourth in the Open Championship the AIB Women's uh, Open AIG Women's Open and then in the CME Globe which is their Tour Championship she had a real good shot at taking the $2 million jackpot, uh, ended up in second place and only won $550,000, up to number 11 in the world, finished 10th on the LPGA's Order of Merit. And because she won last year, almost 11 months ago, I think she won in the Drive-On Championship, she gets into this Tournament of Champions in uh, Lake Nona in Florida. And, you know, she knows that the one thing between her, perhaps, and being a top five player in the world is about 10 yards off the tee. That's all. And she has been working on that. Uh, we know she's been working it for four years, but she keeps working on it. She's been working on it this winter as well, looking for those extra yards. It just puts you closer to the green, a nine iron rather than an eight iron in your hand, all those type of things, scoring clubs. And she has everything else, and she certainly has the head for it. And she's now four or five years now in her, into her professional career and up into the very highest elite echelons of the sport. And I think she's ready to have that really big year that makes uh, points her out to be one of the, the biggest players in the world of uh, women's professional golf. Absolutely. Can't wait to watch her for the year to come. Uh, Greg, thank you, as always, for coming in to join us. Alan Colley, before we finish up, any dramatic team news from Liverpool and Wolves in the FA Cup? Yeah, I think there's big news coming out of it, uh, especially from an Irish point of view. Quiven Keller starts in goal for Liverpool. Obviously, Alisson has had his problems in recent weeks, as have Liverpool, so it's a big opportunity for him. Normally, he plays in the Cup competitions, but mm -hmm. it's more the Carabao Cup. But I actually think this could be he's actually getting his chance and his opportunity because Alisson has been struggling. But the team is almost recognisable from what we would normally associate Marie, uh, Milner, Gomez, Canate, Simicas, the midfield, Bacetic, Thiago, Keita, and Harvey Ellick, Carvalho, and Gakpo starts up front. From a Wolves point of view, it's a big opportunity for them. They should have beat Liverpool in the first game, and Nathan Collins and Joe Hodge start for them as well. So, huge opportunity, and I fancy Wolves. FA Cup. Alex Ferguson dropped Jim Leighton brought in Les Seeley. Never looked back, did he? Did you, did you know Jim Leighton never spoke to him after that, Ruby? <laughs> 
no, no I, I didn't, didn't. I was about Never how would I know that like? well it's in it's in the film Alex Ferguson film and he said to this day he said Archie Knox would have played Jim Layton but he knew it was the right thing to do even though he brought Jim Layton down from Aberdeen and he was one of his favourites but he knew he had to drop and played Les Seeley who he knew wasn't as good as Jim Layton but won them the cup Les Seeley that and night and, and Jürgen Klopp knows his right to play Cleveland there you go Okay, lads, on that note, uh, we have to go. So uh, thank you, Alan Thanks, and Greg and Thanks, Ruby. Ruby. Um, we won't be Cheers back. Well, I'll be back till Thursday. Ruby will be back next week. Uh, Shane will be here tomorrow uh, talking all things Premier League football and ladies football as well. Uh, Betty De Silva is up next. Live across the nation. And on the RTE radio player, this is... RTE 2. 2 FM.